I go back to my father taking me to sporting events as a kid and saying, this coach, look at him. He's just trying not to lose. And it's just stuck with me forever. So I'm always going to err on the side of going to win the game. It has bit me, but like I can sleep with that. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of the University of Pennsylvania, Steve Donahue. Coach Donahue is here today to discuss the value of both giving and seeking mentorship as a coach, crunch time analytics and the stats that really matter down the stretch, teaching players to screen, and we talk Philly sports teams in a highly entertaining start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube, and subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Steve Donahue. Coach, we've been looking forward to this, so thanks for making the time this morning. We're really excited to talk to you. I'm privileged to be here. You guys are doing such a great job, and it's spreading your your word. Everyone talks about slapping glass, and it's an honor to be on here. Thank you, Coach. That means a lot. Yeah, We'd like to dive in right away with mentorship in coaching. I've heard you've talked before about um, someone who was a mentor to you, Bud Gardler, who passed away a couple of years ago and what he meant to you coming up as a coach. Can you talk about mentorship in general and what it means for, you know, someone at whatever level you're at and whatever part of your career you're at to seek and find good mentors to help you along in your career? I think it's an incredible topic. We could spend an hour on this. Honestly, I went to a division three school. I knew no one except my college coach. Skip Worley. He went back to high school. He mentored me in how to be a coach. I had my high school coach, Buddy Gardler, who was a big five-star guy. So I kind of got hooked up and worked some camps. I think the, the main thing I try to tell young guys coming up is it's okay to seek mentorship, but I think you got to understand that you can't just expect someone to say, hey, be my mentor. And this person is going to feel comfortable with you. Whatever you can do to bring value to a relationship with an older coach or someone you want to be mentored by, you want to do that. So that may mean, hey, I went to a couple practices, I watched, and you took down notes and you typed up a nice little document and put some film to it and you just shared it with his assistants. And my point to those kind of things are, that that coach is going to look at you differently than someone that just wants to use me to climb the ladder of coaching. I think that's important that you realize those things. The other part I always had an issue with when I was coming up was I didn't like the word networking, networking and doing all that and meeting people. And, you know, we all know the the final four in a hotel. and That was just not me. Uh, So how was I going to climb this ladder? And I thought it was pretty simple. When I got an opportunity, I was going to do the best job I can and learn my craft and figure out what value I can bring to that program and really get good at specific things. So that program was successful. The coach I was working for was successful. And people who knew him would learn about my skills. I know that's there's no direct line to A, B, C, D, to figure out mentorship. But I think if you keep those kind of things in mind, you may be more successful finding a mentor. Coach, when you're seeking a mentor, as a young coach, what do you think a young coach should be seeking for in a mentor in terms of, you know, he runs an offense you like, or 
you know, are there certain characteristics that you think a young coach should be looking for when seeking a mentorship? Yeah. First of all, um, you have to realize that we all, for the most part, if you didn't play in the NBA or high level college, someone helped you get to where you're at. I was fortunate with, as I said, those two, but also Fran O'Hanlon, who I worked in high school in a pen. Fran Dunphy really took me under his wing and I was very fortunate. But I think there was a lot of guys at my age at the time, like the market was right after you come out of college, you're full of it and vinegar and you just want to attack the market and, and you get intimidated. I did anyway, that there's thousands of people like me trying to get to what I wanted to do for a living. I don't think you should get overwhelmed with that, but seek maybe someone that you feel is a great person with great integrity that you feel would fit your personality. I hope that's what we all are rather than high profile blitz recruiting. But really I was fortunate. As I said, I, when I met Fran Dunphy, I just felt someone that how I saw him from afar, he could be a role model for me. That's the type of person I would seek out if I was a, a young coach at this point, someone that you value their, you know, their core values that they, and how they run the program rather than X's and O's. Coach, my question, and I think it's one that I've heard a lot from other coaches and interested to hear your thoughts on this, but how you actually reach out to someone. I, all right. So I, I think I'm a little different. I, if anybody asks for help, I give it to them. I invite guys to come in and talk. You know, it brings me joy to help. Honestly, it makes me feel good. Not everyone's like me, but there are some like me. I think a good way to do that is try to go through an assistant or a dobo and figure out how you can get to a practice and just observe. I met a lot of guys like that that never contacted me, contacted my assistants. You know, we allow everyone to come to practice. And then when you go there, be locked in, like really, because I always ask guys, what did you see? Every coach will. And no matter what level, we're all learners. If they pick up on something, it's the old expression, you know, the trees through the forest. Sometimes I don't see something that he picks up, whether, you know, why is that kid's body language like that today or some fact. So if you can go to those practices, pick up on something, bring some conversation, and then that's how you develop a relationship. It's a give and take that, as I go back to that original point, bringing value to that visit. And really plan out how you're going to approach the practice. And but more than anything else, really concentrate on the practice and try to learn and then have questions for them. You bring up a really interesting point for me because I've been where I've asked and I've joined practices. And you know, a couple of them, I, I left that practice and was kind of upset at myself because I felt like I wasted. I didn't ask, you know, the coach was very generous and he came up and he talked and I just, whatever it was, I just didn't have any good questions or I felt like, you know, I couldn't get a dialogue going. I guess, what would you advice you give a coach who does visit a practice as far as what should maybe that coach be looking out for, you know, besides maybe a, a drill you ran or a tactic? I know you mentioned on kind of maybe a player's attitude, but yeah. something that you think a coach can maybe try to pick up on to then have a conversation afterwards. Well, I, I think nowadays there's so much film available. So you can prep yourself before going to that. Like you said, you know, I had nothing to say. The other thing I think you got to realize is the game is completely evolving every day. And what you think may be a non really smart question that this guy who's been in the business 35 years has heard or is a silly question. It really isn't. I go back to, I'm re reading this book right now by a, a Wharton professor named Adam Grant called think again. And it's really bringing me back. And I think everybody does this, like things you thought were concrete. I would never change five years ago. You may look at differently right now. And I think having that attitude as you go into a, a practice and just say, coach, why do you set those screens and tell your kid to use that footwork as opposed to I've always been taught this. I think one, it brings that you paid attention to the practice. And two, you know enough to care about 
the coach's practice that you're bringing up a specific thing. Either he does well or he's known to do well. Coach, you brought up another good point. And you know, Adam Grant has a podcast and books that I, I personally love. And so if you see him in the hallways, uh, please oh, let him know I'm a fan. Um, here. Yeah, he's great. But you bring up a point with Adam Grant, and that was my question. And we talked about this a little bit with Mike Martin about mentors or people that influence you outside of the sphere of basketball and basketball coaches. Do you have people that you reach out to or are in your inner circle from other parts of life? Well, I've been fortunate to be on Cal's campuses for over 30 years now, and I've had a ton of people at all the places I've been, Cornell, Boston College, and Penn. Um, We have a, a minister here on campus, Chaz Howard, who's a remarkable person. I go to him with certain stressful things and just his presence and his voice is one of those calming things. I have a lot of those type of people in my life, I'm fortunate. But I also think you you need to, like Adam Grant, you need to read. You need to educate and look outside of the basketball world in what people are doing in terms of growth and organizational management and personal growth and uh, mental health and all the things that can make you ultimately a better coach, but really a better person. As we kind of shift from mentorship to some tactical stuff, we'd like to start with looking at screening and how you teach bigs or guards the art of screening. And so specifically, Pat and I were talking before about a lot of times you see a guy set a screen and then he kind of dies on the screen, he or she, nothing else happens. But you know, watching your teams throughout the years, guys always do such a great job. They set a screen and then they're either sealing or they're they're slipping into space or they're doing another action after they set the screen. Can you talk about that, your philosophy on teaching guys to be great screeners? I think the first thing that is a misconception, in particular with bigs, and even you know, like old school guys that I played with and still talk about. The art of screening for a big, for instance, the first thing you need to do is read who's guarding you. So if he's guarding you and he's already figuring he's going to hard hedge or do something, well, that's the first thing that we're going to indicate you're going to do something pretty quickly as you go into a screen. He's telling you not where the guard's at, how that guy's guarding the ball. It's your man. So if your man is already lifted, you're gone. Like the screen's over and you're taking off and slipping it and sliding and looking for that. If he's one of those ones that you start feeling he makes a late decision, then you got a better chance of really screening and putting the body on someone. But your other point was, how quickly can we move into the next action? And that's, to me, separates really good offense from so-so offense. Are you a team that has to wait, take a look, and there goes a split second by that the action is already gone, that you can now do another action, whether it's a pop, a slip, a seal, based on what the two things happened when you did it. So the first thing is read your man. Second thing is let's go into something else as quickly as we can. The other part of that screening is This is one thing we say to our guys, and this is different for everybody. But with us, I want the guard who has the ball to feel that he can go at any time. You need every advantage to have the ball to beat somebody. So if he feels he can refuse the screen, then he should just do it at any time. And the responsibility is of the big not to make contact if the guard is indeed moving. So we rely on those kind of things to make it happen as quickly as we can. I always err on the side of being quicker with your decision, even if it's slightly wrong, even if it's completely wrong, because hopefully you have another opportunity as the possession goes to get it right. But rather than slow the game down, and the more you slow it down, the easier you are to guard. I'm sorry, just to follow up, maybe I misheard you. You said if the guard is moving or attacking, you're telling the big, then he's got to, not set that screen? Yep. Okay. 
That's his responsibility. Yeah. And then are you saying it so that's almost make it then like a slip? Yeah. We have, depending on where he's at, you can slip it. We call it a brush screen to like a, mm-hmm. a little slot area. You know, obviously the complete corver action to a pop and just make a quick decision and get away without making contact. Coach, kind of a, a higher level screening action or second screen action that we've always seen is when a big sets an on ball and rolls, but then has a really good sense of how to post a help defender, you know, rather than say post his own man on the block, but knows how to post someone in space and sort of disrupt backside movement. When you're teaching guys to screen and roll and look for that next guy to post up against, how are you teaching, I guess, the footwork, how to hit a guy, how to seal them, um, how to look for who to post, all those things after, say, an on-ball and a roll? I've had a few really good ones at that. They are rare, to be honest, and I'll, I'll go into it. The kid, Jeff Foote, a seven-one kid at Cornell, who ended up playing in the NBA, was just such a great knack of really searching down the next guy closest to him to seal hard and figure out the angle so naturally. Other guys like A.J. Broder used this quickness, the kid of Penn we had, just to find space for himself to go. You know, once again, I don't know if it's something that you can tell every person to do the exact same cookie cutter type of thing. I'd rather see body type and movement and what they do. Obviously, the, the whole objective is to somehow get an advantage as closest to the rim as we can. And AJ did that incredibly well. So we could put him in the move more. And so he would slip and ball screen and then cross over and find the next guy that was helping and get an advantage where I would never do that with Jeff Foote. He was just too big. I would try to settle him in, find an area and like, let's more slow the game down and let him really find his spot. But honestly, I, my point to taking advantage of all those things, the risk reward for me as a coach is it's very difficult to teach that part of the game. And then it's very difficult to make sure you have a nice blend of the ball's moving and let's take advantage of that inside. That's always been my debate, whether I spend a lot of time on that and what is the risk reward for a hard two if someone's really guarding you well. Coach, sticking with when the big should be posting up, if they're going to blitz or hard hedge that pick and roll, and you're not, you know, he's not a short roll guy. In terms of how deep do you want him to roll? And, you know, as far as posting and trying to keep space between him and the basket, you know, so he doesn't just give up so much ground and run under the rim. One scenario, if it's a hard hedge, I mean, we just basically want the guard. It could be a non-dribble ball screen. Uh, so we just get it, and now we're four on three, and our cutting starts. And this is A.J. Broder was our five-man the last four years. He led the league in assists the last two years because we just wanted it out of the guard's hands, take advantage of the four on three action, and then work on all of our cutting that we do and make sure we read those reads off the ball as quickly as we can. That's taking advantage of someone like the center we had. Mm-hmm. I think the quicker you can take advantage and get the ball out of a hard hedge, whether it's you know the pass ahead right away, which we call a butler action to someone who steps forward, and we'll talk about that in scouts and read. Once again, getting it out of there, so theoretically you're four on three. Staying on the concept of next-level screeners, uh, the other thing – I know Pat and I, you know, and you too, when you watch guys in Europe, they're so good at changing their angle of, uh, say, an on-ball screen late to give an advantage for the guy to get downhill. A little trickier sometimes at the college level because of the the foul, offensive foul. But how do you teach your bigs to enter an on-ball screen and then potentially change their angle if you want them to at all? I agree with you, Europe, and I spend a lot of time watching and just amazing what they can do. And you have to be careful. The emphasis in our game in college is you can't hit a moving body at all. This is something I believe in. The more we can get ball screens to deliver it off the catch, 
than a dribble into a ball screen, the better. So that allows us, and we call it, you almost chase the ball as you're making that pass. It's released from your fingertips and you're already on your way. So it gives you the best chance to get a good angle and figure out how to hit that guy the proper way to give your ball screener a downward angle and without getting an offensive foul. Kind of building on that coach, will you emphasize, you know, okay, flipping the screen and maybe do you have any sort of communication that, you know, the big will point. So the guard again knows and can wait and not avoiding that illegal screen. Yeah. So we have the last couple of years, we just haven't had guards that shoot it that well, in particular off the dribble. So we've done, we call flip. It's just a hand motion. The big will do. Mm-hmm. But it's going into the game. We know, and you know, we're traditionally most teams are going under these guards, and we're going to come back, and he's going to take two hard dribbles past the angle, and the big's going to come right back and hit. And for the most part, they got to go over the screen at that point, and that's what we want. We want people chasing us, and as quickly and as efficiently as we can do that on a ball screen. We'll do it. And we do work on that and we talk about it and, and a little hand motion by the big and we call it a flip. Sticking with teams going under on that first screen, is there any way that you are teaching your bigs maybe an angle where you can avoid that under where you're forcing them to go over? I do think it's important that the big attacks the guard, in particular, if you know he's going under. So we can take as much real estate as we can close to the three-point line. And there's a, the shot we work on is, now if you go under even some very average shooters, but if you go under so far that he can almost, we call it machine gun dribble into that shot, that's like a an in-rhythm three. And we actually led the nation in effective field goal percentage off the dribble threes with that move with average three-point shooters because we really attack that coverage. And you say, hey, if you're going to go under, you're going to be going under at the, like the elbow. And we're going to step into that shot. Kid Jordan Dingle shot effective field goal percentage of 50% from that shot there. So I do think it's important that you don't just assume that they're going under. I mean, both the dribbler taking it down as quickly and as hard as he can, and the big really attacking the ball handler defender. Coach, if we can stay on that point for a second, because that's an interesting stat you just brought up about off the dribble threes. And that is a hard shot for a guard to learn, one, the decision to shoot it or not when they go under, but then also just technically how to get into that shot with good rhythm. So how do you guys practice that? So one of our things that we go through are series of you know shots that we get in our offense. So may have four or five things. Hey, we're going to work on this today. Big sprint into a refusal. We got a name for all of our actions. That's a Gerlach. I think I told Joe Scott this from it when he was at Air Force. He had a freshman. I don't know the kid's first name, but his last name was Gerlach. And we got Gerlach the whole night. <laughs> he refused this. I said, he's not using it. <laughs> so for the last 20 years, I call it a Gerlach. Okay. <laughs> and, and one of them is, hey, they're going under. And we call it a machine gun dribble. You got it. You took your first dribble. At the screen, the second one really plants it, and you go in rhythm, and you shoot that shot there. And we look at numbers for how people shoot off the dribble, ball screens, and and how we're going to guard it. And then, conversely, we talk about, we look at our guys' numbers through practice and who's good at it. We actually have some guys who are better at that than catch and shoot in rhythm threes, you know, for whatever reason. So, We'll encourage that in certain plays. Coach, I know we'll get into analytics a little bit later, but what are the numbers that say, okay, this guy can shoot that machine gun three? Or, you know, what is, I guess, the percentage, kind of that that border that you're looking for to give him the green light? I think for all of us, you know, you're looking at your points per possession. And for someone, it's not for everyone, but like for a guard, if you can do that, you know, we all want to get over that one point per possession. But even for that shot to be, to me, if you're going to take that shot, that's got to be a really good 1.15. You're shooting at it over 35%, closer to the 40. 
and it's worth it to do it to me because to me, you know, you're not really making the defense work. For the most part, they're giving you that shot. So you better prove that it's worth us to work on it, to talk about it, to be part of the game plan, to be something that in this kid's player development, he's something that he should work on. To me, it's more, you know, you shoot that almost as good as a catch and shoot, which to us, that's the 40. That's the 1.2 yeah. I'm trying to get to. Coach, we're I guess we're sort of slowly inching into an analytics conversation, which we're going to get to. But with this shot and with the points per possession you're looking at, does it matter the time into the offense that these guys maybe take that shot, like first five to eight seconds? Do you care or do you want the ball moved in some other action first and then look for these kinds of shots? You know, I think I stole this from Jeff Van Gundy's words with analytics and, and coaching in general. It, it's not a science. It's an art. And the feel of we came down three straight times and we did that, you know, so no, I don't want that to be done a fourth time. And then if it's four minutes left in the game and it's, it's crucial that we get a great look here. So time and score matters as well. Those are the things that you talk to your team about and develop that feel for the game as best you can with kids. And we talk about that a ton Our breakdown in, in terms of scrimmaging and practice. And there's always an element of what the score is, what the time in the game is, where we're heading, where we were. And we try to educate our guys as much as we can with those kind of things. And this might be a nice place to kind of get into this conversation, which we talked about before, and that's end of game analytics you know, specifically say the last four or five minutes in crunch time of a game and how that's different than maybe your view of analytics in the first 35 minutes. Yep. So I'd love to have your thoughts on that when the game becomes closer or towards the end and how you view analytics. Yeah, it's good. So we use a ton of analytics for coaches more, but in player development too, which we can touch on, but in game prep for a scout, there's numbers, you know, how well do they shoot it off the dribble coming off the ball screen. Oh, how good is uh, their big off a, a jump hook on the low block? You know, how good is this kid really on a catch and shoot three? So those all went into the game plan. Now the game's going on and you're 30 minutes in, you're going to the eight minute under timeout and you allow the kid shoot a three because based on your numbers going into the game, he wasn't very good, but that game, he's making it. And the big who you wanted to live with the jump hook because he shot it at 42% has made four out of five. So we'll come out and now we'll say, all right, we're going to now make this adjustment. The next time, you know, their big catches it on the low block. We're going to double it based on that game in what's going on right now in a critical period, whatever we did now has taught us what is right at this moment. And I think that is the feel for the game. And it's critical later in the game that you utilize numbers because that was smart, but I don't think you should be married to that. I think that's what the game is telling you is also critical. And we have those numbers. So the last eight, four minute under timeout, it's really time to figure out what has worked, what hasn't worked, Based on numbers, but based on also, you know, you can see a kid's look in his eye. Like, this is his night, and we're not going to let him have a shot that going into the game, we thought we would. Coach, we talk about analytics, you know, phasing out like that mid-range shot. How does how you perceive the mid-range shot change, like you said, when you're in the final five, four minutes? Yep. So, in particular, just the way the game keeps evolving, there's been so much push on the analytics side. I think people in particular fans get lost in the analytics that it's just an offensive thing uh, for coaches. It's, it's much more defense. So if you know, someone's taking, you know, their goal is to get to the rim and get fouled and shoot in rhythm threes. Well, defensively, you're going to try to take those away and force them into the lane. Conversely, you're going to have to figure out what you're going to do on offense in critical moments that you're going to have to force your team that 
what is the best percentage shot at certain times. So now teams are drop coverage. They're chasing you off the ball screen. They're stunting. They're disciplined. It's a, you know, the fight of will. I think at that point, what is a good shot? And you better work on it that you get good at getting in the lane with certain guys and making sure you take a high efficient shot in the lane because that's the best shot at that point. Those scenarios to me are what really good teams know how to react to in end of game, end of shot situations. You talked about getting to a good shot or a mid-range shot for your better players with someone like yourself or, you know, teams all over the world want to get a, a spot up three or a layup or a dunk or get fouled. And so in practices and in skill development, we work on those kinds of shots all the time. But now in crunch time, you need a guard that can get in creatively, find a jump shot for himself. How do you work on helping those guys develop that skill set? Yeah, I do think it's, it's one, and I think it's at every level. Not everyone is going to have to use that skill, nor does any, most coaches don't want that. Yeah. So each team's going to be built a certain way, whether it's NBA, Luka Doncic is going to have the ball and nothing against Jalen Brunson. They're not going to ask him to do that for the most part. Right. So I think that development comes, you do a guard, big breakdown. Yeah, we can all do this, but you're also going to do after practice, you're going to grab that one or two guys and say almost every day, we're going to do 10 from this spot, 10 from this spot, 10 from this spot, because we're going to ask you to do this. And I'm going to empower him to know that I'm not going to be talking about this a whole lot with the team, but you have to realize that your role is going to be someone that we're going to ask you to make this kind of play late in the game, late in the clock. Coach, I'd like to then ask too about pace and crunch time. And I think it's always the adage, the game slows down and becomes more defense. You know, can't, if you are a fast pace team, can you maintain this pace in crunch time? Or is it something that as a team, you also, you got to be addressing that in crunch time, we need to be able to play at a slower pace, or we need to have our, our sets or our actions. I got so many thoughts on pace. This is my year off and thinking about it and how critical it is. Like our last two national champions were literally last in the country in pace in Virginia and Villanova, but that's who they are. Only three of the top 30 teams in pace of play in the 2019 season, last time we had an NCAA tournament, made the NCAA tournament. So it's not like it's an ingredient naturally for success. However, something we really preach, and I think confusion with pace and getting a quick shot, there's a big difference. I think pace is very important all times of the game. In particular, late in the game, your ability to be disciplined and really putting that team on its heels to trust all the things that you worked on and play at a pace so you can get a quick one. We had a great overtime game against Harvard this past season, and we played with incredible pace in overtime. And I thought it was the difference. And we get five layups. And it was pace. It wasn't like, let's really slow the game down. This is just my philosophy. Let's make it harder for them to guard and really get into our actions with crispness and efficiency and moving. And and at the same time, make sure we're getting a great shot. And when you go into a game, because I feel it on defense, the Yale team from 2019, they were top five in efficient offense in transition. And they played with incredible pace. And I thought as an opposition, that was really difficult to know that you couldn't catch your breath and that they played with elite pace. And if you let your guard down at all, they would score on you. So if they were willing to walk it when it got really critical, I thought that was to our advantage. So it's such a great topic to discuss. I'm curious, what do you define as like a, a good shot when playing in pace? You know, if you're going to get a quick shot, what are you defining? Like, kind of like, are there requirements for you to take that shot? I try to 
and this is the older Steve Donahue, not the younger Steve Donahue. It's just allow for freedom. Like I just want our kids to play free. So I don't want them to think. Now, there's an element that we've done all this for months and months and thousands of hours of player development. Player development to me is different than skill development. Skill development, you can do anything. You work on your shot, your elbow, footwork. But player development is basically playing in basketball with a ton of decisions and how we do it. So everybody on the court knows it when they see it, that that was a good shot for us. I think at Penn now, like the kids know it. They sense it. No police each other and hold each other accountable for shots. But, you know, honestly, it's, it's a layup. It's getting fouled. It's an in rhythm three. And then it's, all right, well, we knew we had to do something a little different on this possession, slightly different. But, and we look at it, you know, we're, we shot the most unguarded shots in our league this year. That's a big stat for us. And we'll look at that after games and evaluate shot quality. Coach, kind of uh, wrapping up a little bit with crunch time and analytics and things like that. Someone like yourself that has a number of years as a head coach and you have all wealth of experience, but then you're also someone that does rely on analytics and looks at the numbers. You know, you always hear like end of game situations, coaches make decisions on whatever helps them sleep at night. You know, if we're going to win or lose, I want to do it this way. What's the balance for you of when you're making late game decisions of sort of the art of it, of the feel of the game, like you mentioned, or looking at kid's eye when you make a decision as opposed to, you know, what the analytics say what you would do? I think it's a total feel. And and this comes across from almost every game. I, I go back to my father taking me to sporting events as a kid and saying, this coach, look at him. He's just trying not to lose. And it's just stuck with me forever. And I will never make a decision which isn't aggressive trying to win the basketball game. Like whether it's a, a difficult play, putting the foot on the throat to me is the one aspect I want my players to feel. So I'm always going to err on the side of going to win the game. It has bit me, but like I can sleep with that. Like I chose how we were going to win or lose. And I think for me, that's how I want our culture to feel that we went after it rather than play the conservative and we're afraid to lose. Coach, within that mentality, will there be times where maybe you'll run a defense, run a, a play that you haven't practiced. Now, obviously, you know your guys are capable of, but that you haven't repped at all. Yeah, absolutely. I may see, you know, like my guys will know, like we put in an out-of-bounds play almost every weekend in the Ivy that we never ran before. And I'll do the same thing late in the game. I'll be like, something comes to you. Wow, they are absolutely not guarding the ball out-of-bounds. So can we just do something to get this kid open because I don't, I don't see any other way we can get a shot because we're, we're at the point of this is a really gardens. Mm-hmm. That's just one mm-hmm. scenario. I think you got to be willing to do those things and be creative in critical moments. And to me, that's the fun of it is to figure out a way and to allow your kids to try those things to win a game. Actually, as me and Dan talked kind of preparing, we talked about maybe how you train creativity in a player, but hearing you talk about crunch time, I'd like to know, how do you train creativity in a coach or as a coach, how do you build your creativity? Once again, this is the the older coach and not the, the younger Steve who went to Cornell <laughs> and was a maniac in my way or the highway. You know, I, I hope I learned. I think the more you can empower your guys it's going to allow you to be such a better coach. And I always tell our teams before every year, I'm not going to be much of a different coach than I was last year, but you at your age, you're going to determine our path here. And I'm going to allow you to really grow and make mistakes. And I always say, probably guys are sick of hearing me saying it, but the team that, in my opinion, wins the game, 
is a team that's willing to make mistakes. If you're willing to put yourself on the line and make mistakes, the team that turns the ball over least in college basketball, if you look at it, they're not necessarily winning teams. The teams that are willing to do those things. So as a coach, if you can somehow build your identity as one that the players look at you and know that they tried something and it wasn't good, that they don't have to worry about looking over their shoulder and feel that the coach is going to kill me. I think that's the way you grow and you get to be a, an elite offensive defensive team because you tried stuff and the players are comfortable knowing that they can do that. When and how did that, I guess, switch in you take place as a coach going from you know younger coach to older where you started to allow a little more creativity? That's a long story, but okay. there's a, a good, but it's, it's good. I mean, I think it's good for coaches. I had a traumatic experience where I had a player in my practice, Khalid Gant, back in 2006, break his neck. Crazy play. But at that time, I took stock in what I was doing and how I was coaching. And I didn't feel responsible for that, nor did Khalid feel I was. But when I really... It hit me like a ton of bricks. I hadn't won. I was way over the top. I was way too demanding. I was way less understanding. I had no real sense of who my players were. And I was crushed when it happened that I somehow created a culture that this happened. Like the drills I made up and they were ridiculous. And and the players at that point I just allowed myself to be real vulnerable and said, like, I am in a bad place. I'm not a good coach. And I allowed to, at that point, just to flip the switch. And from that point on, if you look at the flight of that program and, and what we did after that point, it's remarkable. And my advice would be just allow yourself to be vulnerable. Allow yourself to make mistakes. Admit it allow you to know you're not perfect. I think it will help you grow. Coach, going through that experience into now, how has that helped you in a day-to-day, like making decisions or recruiting or how you deal with people? Like, how does that seep into all the other things you do? Yeah, in everything. Um, at that point, I had four children and I, I, that's why it hits you. Once you become a parent, you look at things differently. But when Kalik went down, I, I just thought of my son. Like one of my, like, what would I do? So every decision is not life or death. It's more fun to try things and failure's not fatal. Like it just isn't. And obviously in my experience as a coach, I, I was national coach of the year in 2010 and I was fired in 2014 by someone that told me I wasn't a good coach. And I learned from all those experiences. And so it allows you to really grow and just be willing to make mistakes and, and just have fun with why we all got into this to begin with. And the ironic part is you'll become a better coach, allowing those things to happen. Awesome. Well said. Well, coach, we'd like to uh, transition now into an always fun segment we have here. Uh, come on. This is like the, it's, it's a rage. It's <laughs> start. The kids it. are talking about it. Uh, <laughs> or sub. Come on. Can't wait. Okay. Well, good. Well, yeah. So start sub or sit. I, I know um, you've heard it. So quickly um, we'll give you how it goes. So we're going to give you three different topics. You tell us which one you start, which one sub, which one you're going to sit. Um, and we can have a little discussion around it. So coach, we'll hop right into it. We always like to start with kind of a, I guess, non-basketball one. So first question, you've got one free hour of time to watch another Philadelphia sports team play. Are you going to watch the Phillies, the Eagles, or the Flyers? Start, sub, or sit? (laughs) I I would have warned the audience, like, you guys don't give these to you before we get on. So there's no... (laughs) That's right. Yeah, right. And... uh... It's so funny. If you ask me in 1974, I'm starting the Flyers. 
Okay. They were Stanley Cup back-to-back champs. I can still name every guy on that team and every number. To this day, I love the Flyers. <laughs> it's it was my whole life back then. But I got to sit them now. Okay. <laughs> it's not something that's in my daily routine. Now, the Eagles and Phillies is a really hard one. I grew up playing baseball. I, I played through college. I love the baseball side of it. I'm going to start the Phils. Okay. I think it's it's 162 games. It's the summer pastime. It's drinking beers at the Jersey Shore and listening to Harry Callis and Roydy Ashburn and and doing everything. And then I'm going to sub the birds. I'm sure that's not everybody in Philly, but there's games I'm going to start them. It's a Eagles Cowboy week in Philly. Uh, I love to start it then. But in the long run, there's my three choices. Coach, that's great. We took the Sixers out of there just because, you know, non-basketball for you. But for those outside and and those, you know, listen to this that are, you know, don't live in the U.S., can you explain a little bit of the the fandom of Philadelphia, of just how passionate the sports fans are? You know, like we all grew up and I grew up in a place called Delco, which you got to look it up. It's a, and we always say there's a, a bar and a bookie on every corner. <laughs> so I grew up as an eight-year-old going to, you know, maybe my dad, my dad passed. So he done going to a bookie's uh, basement every Saturday morning and doing our football pools. The real point of it is it's part of our fiber of being in Philadelphia is the four franchise. And I'll say the fifth is big five basketball. Uh, that's what it is. And it means so much. My mom still listens to sports radio She's 85 and she's in the kitchen and she's cooking and she's listening to sports radio and she has an opinion on the Wentz trade <laughs> and it's rooted in understanding everything that the Eagles done since 1960. And that's every family in Philadelphia. It means so much to what we've done. And I don't know why, but there is a provincial piece of Philly that no one really goes for. Like I, I left for 17 years. I come back. They couldn't believe I left. Like they go one town over. It's a big deal. They would never think. And I think sports is something that we all can commiserate with and also celebrate when they win. Coach, a quick follow up. Start, sub, or sit. The Philly fans, the New York fans, or the Boston fans? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. It's like... I, when I lived in Boston, they were so successful. So I live with Boston fans. You know, my kids, they don't know anybody. They think you win championships. If you don't, <laughs> it's a failure. So I'm going to sit the Boston fans. Okay. Uh, they, they just had no idea the pain. that, And they did for years, but this new generation doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sub the New York fan because – They've been through a lot of pain. The Knicks have obviously struggled. The Rangers had their cups here and there. The Giants had their random Super Bowl. But they're, they're feeling the pain the Philly fans feels. Yeah. And I'm going to start the Philly fans. Got to. We're going to sell out every Flyers game, whether they win or lose. We're going to listen to this one. We'll have a game at the Wells Fargo, a big East game. They'll know 20,000. A game at Temple, the Leah Core Center 4. There'll be 10,000. Hawk Kill will have one of five, and they'll sell that out. And then we'll play a Penn, a Harvard game at the Palestra. There'll be 7,000 people. And now there'll be some that went to all of them, yeah. but this just tells you the loyalty <laughs> of the Philly fan. Yeah. Besides producing great fans and teams, uh, Philadelphia also produces one of my favorite sitcoms. Uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> A terrific show. So shout out to Patty's Pub. The best. Yep. (laughs) Kitten mittens. Good. I think after this podcast, you're going to get emails from young coaches looking to join practice and Boston fans giving you hate mail. I know my Boston fans. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Moving along. Coach, my start, sub, or sit. I'm going to give you three pick and roll positions. And for the sake of this exercise, they're going to go over. So would you rather run a pick and roll, side pick and roll, empty corner, slot pick and roll going to the two-man side, or a middle pick and roll 
going towards the one man side or two man on the backside. So in terms of what would give you, you think the best chances of success or to counter whatever the defense is going to throw at you. Yeah. I'm going to eliminate, I'm going to sit the uh, middle and that's not necessarily a reason, just the, the personnel. I just haven't had much success with players that have that much on their plate. I just think you have to do so much more read and react in the middle Teams can be creative, things like that. The start to me is easy. If you can get to an empty side ball screen, I think there's so much harder to guard if they happen organically. Because I think mm-hmm. that's another pod we can do. Because I love the creativity of guarding that now that I see in Europe that I'm going to try with naked sides where you can really jump it and do different things. Uh, but I also, I love it that if you make one mistake, you get a layup for the big. We do so much action. I know you had a real podcast on this with the screening action that you can do on the three-sided yeah. uh, there. But we've had so much success with cutting off of that as well. So I love that one. And uh, who am I subbing now? The uh, The slot pick and roll, like the single-side slot pick and roll. You know, I do like those different angles. I do think it's if it happens and we try to get into them organically, I do think you you have a, a chance to, because teams don't really practice coverage, you can get a big on a roll like that or a head turn and get a cut. But if you ask me, that's that's my order of those. Coach, to follow up, you know, yeah, me and Dan, we've kind of done a whole big thing on that empty side, the yeah. ball screen continuity. What kind of cutting do you like to maybe run off that three-man side to take advantage of the defense, especially, let's say, if they're going to bump with that corner man? So a lot of times we can get into that. Like we played Arizona last year, and my whole goal was organically, as quickly as we can, let's get into sprinting ball screens with an empty side. Mm -hmm. Because I thought that they hard-head so much, and they were young, and that we could cut off of that as soon as we got it to the big. Whether we got it to the big in a pocket, we got it to them on a brush, we got it to them slipping, we call it slip and slide. Mm-hmm. And we, we got 10 layups off of that. That was critical for us to stay in the game. Unfortunately, we couldn't guard them. <laughs> uh, but that's a, a great way. Not necessarily if the guy gets, the ball handler does go downhill, then we're most likely cutting from one of those opportunities or we love what Loyola does and Porter does with that little, Mm -hmm. we call it a little getting away screen. It's a little, you sit behind the guy's butt in the middle, the corner guy just rises up a little bit and you kick it there. Yeah, We work that into it, but we don't do a lot and we don't encourage it with the ball handlers much. But now with so much drop coverage, it's almost forcing you to come up with creative ways, like the cut, like the Loyola screen. Coach, so moving on, start, sub, or sit. These are rules you wish men's called basketball had that other, the NBA or Europe or the women's game have. Right, right. Okay, so start, sub, or sit. Advancing the ball to half court on a timeout, four quarters instead of two halves, or the double bonus on five fouls that resets every quarter. I actually love them all. And, okay. I, and, I, and I'm, I'm not necessarily one that wants to change our game. Like I like 30 seconds. I do think it's their college kids. We're growing them into pros. So I think that makes our game unique. It's kind of, no, and I, I hear like, I, I get like, you know, European pros, coaches, and NBA coaches look at our game and think the spacing isn't great or it's sloppy or well, they're kids. Yeah. You know, we're teaching them. We're, we're trying to do as best we can. I, I do think we can do a better job. I wish we had more access to the kids and I know we went overboard. That would better our game, just teach the game better. But these rules that you're saying, I think would elevate the game for the fan Uh advancing the ball to me eliminates fouling more. So if you knew 
if there's a five second difference in the shot clock that you're going to get a rebound, you can call time out and you're probably not going to foul. You're going to advance it and do it. So that to me is a positive. I like the four quarters and the ability to wipe off the fouls. You can be strategic in what you're doing in those moments. And then with that, the double bonus, if you do have a 10-minute stretch where you're getting it, the team takes advantage of those things. But I think it rewards discipline. If you don't foul, maybe you never get to the bonus, but it also allows you, if you have a bad stretch of fouling, that you get a chance to clean it up Yeah. the rest of the half. So I'll start the advance and sub the four corners and uh, set the... Um, the hell was the other one? <laughs> so you'd sit the a double bonus five yeah, double, yeah. double bonus if I had. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I know. Well, coach, you know, so you and I both coaching in the men's college game. These are things that I've always thought, like you mentioned. Yeah. What I always like too with the four quarters is there's more end of quarter scenarios. Um, and then even too looking at substitution patterns and being able to take your best player out maybe the end of a quarter and sit them through the break and then sit them for 30 seconds on the side of the, the next quarter. And now you've given them seven or eight minutes of downtime, but only off the floor for a minute. So I love all the possibilities. And that's why you run the best basketball podcast in the country. <laughs> Slapping glass coming up with incredible points. There. I agree with you. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it's more fun for everybody and Listen, part of this game is making sure that it's in fun for kids and fans and everybody. And the points you just made, I I agree with you. Coach, kind of following up on, on this point, you know, what I like about FIBA is the less timeouts and that there are no live ball timeouts. In terms of a coaching perspective, do you think that would help hinder or make maybe no difference at all to coaching? I, I would, um, and I think Jeff said this on your podcast, like, Eliminate as many timeouts as we can. Right. Like we're going to, we see them every four minutes. Right. (laughs) Like about one and a half. (laughs) And and with those rules, I like, you know, and I think, I think all coaches would adjust. And I think it's the flow of the game is great. You're exactly right. If you watch a live European game, I mean, they're like an hour and a half. Yeah. I know with commercials and all that. I still think you can get that accomplished with West timeouts. And I think it would, I think it would actually grow our game and allow kids and players to figure things out and make it more exciting for the fan as well. Coach, my last start sub sit for you entering an offense, a horns entry, an Iverson entry, or like a two guard front, a two, three entry to get into an, an offense. I think they're all personnel based. Uh, I love them all in a way. And one of my things I've been thinking again about is I think of playing bigger. You know, our Cornell teams play bigger. I thought it helped us. I play bigger here at times. I think if you can play big yet still play with pace and in space and fluid, and I think you're better. I think your margin of error is better. When you're bigger, you cover more space, you rebound better, you you bother passes better. So so horns is something that they do over there and they do it so creatively. The AI cut is also, and I've been a, a two-cut guy, a two-front guy for a long time, but I think people get confused. The reason I do that is I literally think it's in seven seconds, I got three basket cuts, I got four ball touches. I got two ball reversals and we've got the defense moving. So I'm going to start that. I'm going to probably sit the horns action and then sub uh, the AI because I do think there's ways to really get the defense chasing on different angles with that. Coach, outside of those three that we gave you, is there another alignment that you like to go through either from a set perspective or just kind of running your offense? Yeah, I, I like, and it's different years. I like it, but Michigan just brought us back to, they do just a simple exchange into a quick ball screen with an action on the other side. Like we did it for years. And I just kind of got away from it. I think that's a good way 
Richmond does it, Princeton stuff, where you really lift and use the whole half court and you get the ball hot and moving across with an exchange, a reversal into an action. Yeah. So it's not just here's our action and the defense. And I always say I basically five set of eyes on you. Uh, You start moving the ball like that. Maybe you have two sets of eyes that are kind of worried about the action and you really didn't do anything except move each other and move the ball and then get into your action. What would be the situations where, okay, yeah, we want to move over a mess ball, or you have a team like, let's come down, let's run a ball screen and just play out of it. And from there, we'll build our offense. Let's say you're playing against a team that's physical, they're in you. And like, that takes a lot of energy for your guys to do what I just said prior. Mm-hmm. And there's times I'm like, well, we just we just don't have this. We don't have it in us to do this for 40 minutes. So they pick us up. They're really working us. Then I'm going to come up with something, just a simple thing is like come up and hit them hard with a ball screen and get our best player downhill and get them into decision-making early and be good at it. But it's funny, different things come back. When we were turning the corner at Cornell, I always thought Yale and James does a great job, James Jones, and he really had some physical athletes. And there was a point where I said, like, we're not messing around here. Like, I need to hit and get Lewis Dale, who ended up being a player of the year, in a ball screen and make the game simple for him because I think it gave us our best chance of being successful against that size and athleticism. Well, Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit uh, hot seat. Th- thank you. You've That was awesome. Um, I hope you can still go to Boston and get a, get a steak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of good friends up there and uh, they're going to kill me for it. <laughs> well, coach, first of all, before we we close here, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. I mean, we always appreciate sitting down and being so open with us. So thank you for that. To close, well, you've mentioned it throughout the podcast, but unfortunately you've had a year off and a lot of time to sit and think about the game and coaching and philosophy and life and all of that. And you've mentioned how you've started to see things or think about things potentially differently over the course of the year. I'd love to hear what some of those ideas are that you're thinking differently about. So, uh, and we'll keep it to basketball. I mean, everybody's thought differently in, in terms of the world. I mean, it's been uh, crazy. But just for basketball, I got, I mean, I, I don't think anybody's watched more college basketball than me. My kids are older. I got time. I love it. I have a lot of friends that I like to learn. And and then I, I've done a game for CBS that we did an analytics game. So I got a really a chance to think again about what we're doing. And I'll touch on it again. As much as the game has changed, it really hasn't. And the simple thing is, if you can get a really good shot close to the basket and you can stop teams from getting a good shot close to the basket, you're going to win most games. You look at the teams that are two-point percentage offense and two-point percentage defense. Make it that simple. If you're good at that in your league, you're one or two in your league, you're going to the NCAA tournament. If you're top 50 in the country in both of them, you're good. As much as people talk about, and I'm guilty of this, we're top five in limiting threes. Well, that's not what I'm going to do from now on. It was right for me. For our group, when I took over Penn, it's not right for me now. And I feel I learned a lot just watching what is more important. And I think if you can go back to the basics of really guarding the rim and making it hard around there as best you can, and then scoring and being efficient as much as you can there. Being out of the game for a year, what is it that you've missed most about being a part of a team and that you're looking forward to most coming back next year. And that's an easy one because I went through this uh, between BC and Penn and like, and uh, coaches are out there. will get this. Like you wake up in the morning and you're so used to, like, I just, whether it's meditation or not, I take two minutes and just go right through, you know, what is priority one, two, and three. And how am I going to do this with this group? And then going 
and planning that out with a group of guys all pulling in the same direction. And that is your motivation. And that's inspiring. And how are you going to inspire those guys that day to do it? It's such a great feeling. It, it gives you great purpose. And I didn't have it that year off. And I didn't realize it until about a month in. I'm like, I'm not doing anything. I'm not, it's not motivating. And I don't have a, a group. And we're not all figuring out. And sometimes it's the pain. You miss the pain of losing. And and I know uh, Fran O'Hanlas, you've got to be willing to sleep with pain. But if you don't do that, don't be a coach because you got to embrace that. And, and I miss that. I miss the angst of that. And how am I going to get out of this? Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Coach Steve Donahue. For more insights on this podcast, please subscribe to our newsletter at slappingglass.com. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.